Hello and welcome to the Shock Your Potential podcast. I am your host, Michael Sherlock. Each one of us holds great potential, and tapping into that potential is my passion and my mission. Shock Your Potential is a global leadership training company dedicated to creating positive, productive, and profitable workplaces. We develop, nurture, train, and guide leaders at all levels and at all points in their career. Through this podcast, I get to interview amazing leaders who are shocking their own potential and the potential of those around them. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com. And don't forget to check out my two best-selling books, Tell Me More, How to Ask the Right Questions and Get the Most Out of Your Employees, and Sales Mixology, Why the Most Potent Sales and Customer Experiences Follow a Recipe for Success. Join us now as we meet another great guest. And don't forget, subscribe, rate, and like us today. Today, I have a guest. Her name is Natalie Nixon, and she is going to challenge the way you think about things. Her company is called Figure Eight Thinking. I think you're going to uh, enjoy not only what she has to share with us, but we'll really walk away with some different perspectives on how you view everything that you do every day. So welcome, Natalie. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. This is really fun. I know we've had kind of an initial conversation and there were so many more things that I wanted to ask you, but I selfishly wanted to save this time for, you know, really, uh, you know, being able to share it with the listeners and learning more. So I'll let you give the little bit of the backstory. So tell us a little bit about you and your business and, and what you do at Figure Eight Thinking. Sure. Well, I am a design strategist and a hybrid thinker. And at Figure Eight Thinking, my goal is always to help my clients optimize creativity. And I've done a lot of thinking about what creativity is. On my website, I have a framework that I developed called the 3I Creativity Framework, where basically the three I's that um, involve the system of creativity, because I believe creativity is a system, are improvisation, intuition, and then insight or impact. I, I have a background that's a bit loopy. I have a background in fashion and anthropology, or I should say anthropology and fashion. It kind of my, my mom taught us how to sew when we were girls, and I, I parlayed that into a hat design business in my 20s when I was living in New York City, and then got more formal industry training working in the global uh, sourcing fashion industry. And I studied anthropology in college and, and anthropology, cultural anthropology, is something that I, I literally use every day in my work. And it's informed my, my work as a design strategist. Um, but I'll, I'll stop right there. That's, that's basically what I do. I work at the intersection of creativity and strategy using something called design thinking to help my clients uh, to, you know, develop more meaningful questions so that they can um, progress and connect more meaningfully to each other's employees and to their customers. It's such a, a fantastic concept and topic, especially, and I hate to say this over and over again, but I find myself saying this over again, and you can tell me if you think anything different, is that, you know, as we become more and more addicted to our devices, especially, I see the the skill and the art of communication as something that is lacking. And so especially when it gets into using that in, in business conversations, in 
interviewing people for jobs, in being interviewed for jobs, um, in how we approach our, our customers or how customers approach a company. There's so many gaps. And I, I just feel like, you know, the lost art of how we communicate and, and connect creatively and uh, I guess in a way that's, uh, you know, has a positive outcome. I'm using, I'm using the wrong words now, um, that that can be something that if we hone that skill, it can really improve all those areas. So, you know, how do you see that? Do you see that we're falling victim to this more and more today versus other times in our, you know, our past and our culture? I think so. And based on my my grounding in design thinking, you know, design thinking is a problem framing and problem solving process. It starts with empathy. And the the root of all great communication, in my view, is having an empathic stance and and being ultimately, or I should say predominantly curious about the other. And that's the start of, of better questions and being more inquisitive and cultivating your capacity to listen and hear and observe and see. I was a professor for 16 years and I definitely observed when I was, especially when I was primarily teaching undergraduate level students that the capacity for written communication was really um, diminishing. And Mm -hmm. um, that was definitely aligned with the, the, you know, the really fast rise in digital platforms and digital communication. So I definitely agree with you that as we've seen more micro communication forms like Twitter, for example, um, basic grammar has, has kind of gone to the wayside. (laughs) Oh yes. um, Yeah. So that, that's, that's problematic so that you, you, you still what, no matter what you, you want to do in your, in your life and in your career, you still have to be able to effectively communicate. And so that does require some really basic concrete technical skills that grammar guides us through. Um, but it also is involved with the, the, your capacity to tell a good story and to be able to, to do good storytelling. Again, empathy is a, is a big part of that. Perspective is a really important part of that. And repeating your narrative and your story in, in multiple venues to different audiences also helps you to hone and distill your, your point of view. I always used to tell my students, and I even kind of tell this now to graduate students I teach, and to clients, you have to have a point of view. You have to have a perspective. And that ability to communicate hones your perspective over and over again. Absolutely. And, I, you know, one of the a couple of things that you said, many of them resonated with me. One is is about grammar because I was a former elementary school literature <laughs> teacher. So me too. I oh taught middle school, high school English for for five years. <laughs> and I, my poor son, he's like, "Mom, why do you always correct my grammar?" And I said, "Because there's certain things that you still say that drive me nuts." And I know you're a grown man, but come on, <laughs> right? There are rules. Yes, but I also see, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote my first book that is called Tell Me More was really about active listening as a way of communicating more effectively because so many times, and especially with this whole concept of like the elevator pitch, you know, be able to know your story so you can tell somebody in an elevator. It is so very one-sided because it's like almost vomiting your information at somebody in a, you know, Mm -hmm. short amount of time. What do you want to accomplish by that? You know, is by sharing elevator pitch, is that going to get somebody to do business with you? Or is there something about actively communicating so you can listen to their story and tell your story so that you find synergies and common denominators that make you want to progress? 
Well, I think people forget that the the big part of communicating is listening. It's mm-hmm. not it's you know it's not just the telling, but it's really as you said, actively listening, so that you understand how to connect the dots back to um, whatever your objective is in the conversation. Hopefully, the conversation just starts with with being curious about the other person and understanding where they're coming from, what they do, what 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 they get excited about. Absolutely. And then that way you're, it, it's just more genuine. And I think that, you know, as I keep coming back to this, you know, how much we're connected on our devices and the loss of that, that human interaction is, you know, is eroding all of us. And it's, you know, the more that we can think about it, the more that we can talk about it and do something to practice something different, we can, we can regain those skills if, if we want to, if we choose to. Yes. One of the things I think is cool about some of the digital communication platforms is how it is starting to accentuate the power and value of visual literacy and visual communication. So things like like Instagram, I think, are pretty awesome in that way, because we, we do tend to rely pretty heavily on verbal and text communication, even if we're talking about more traditional forms of essay or novel or written forms, let alone the micro forms of writing like like Twitter really emphasizes. But I do get excited about the integration of, of pictures and visuals for stories because the, the fundamentally as, as human beings, we are hardwired to be visual creatures. And that, that's something that I incorporate a lot into my work is the power of the doodle and, and, and your ability to, to visually communicate. So I just wanted to also mention that. And that's what I wanted. I, it's funny that you say that because I wanted to talk to you about that. I, you know, as looking through your website, I love your website because your visuals, you. <laughs> they're just, and it looked like you did something new to your front page, your, your uh, homepage. I don't, I might have added a couple <laughs> of, of other things. Yep. So I noticed that, but um, one of the things that really jumps out at me as, you know, when I, especially if I look at some of the pictures of the groups is how much they're doing visually, but will you talk a little bit about the doodling? Because I see that in many different pictures. And first of all, I can't even draw stick people that look like stick people. So what, <laughs> what do you do with some of these organizations and how do you use it for them? And how does that help them to develop and expand themselves? Well, first, I have to to give a lot of credit to people who I consider colleagues, friends, and, and great teachers of mine in the area of visualizing ideas. And those two people who come to mind are Dan Rome, who is the author of Back of the Napkin and Blah, 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 and Words Aren't Enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, his recent book, Draw to Win, really kind of captures all of his other books, if you kind of want a, a quick study in Dan's um, technique of visualizing data. Um, but the other person is also Sunny Brown, who's based in Austin, Texas. Um, but I started to integrate this whole concept of show me, don't just tell me, when I founded the Strategic Design MBA program at Jefferson University. So to really compel graduate business students who are coming from tech and healthcare and nonprofit and government to doodle to to in 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 order to communicate effectively um was at first i had to really ask them to suspend judgment but ultimately to a, to a, to an alum it has become really a hallmark of their leadership style and of their ability to um negotiate and so the bottom line is that you know if you go to any great presentation one of the powerful uh, pivot points of, of TED, of the TED Talk 
uh, phenom is that um, it really gave a range of people the, the, the platform to tell stories visually. And if you notice, not one person gets on a TED stage and shows you a bunch of slides with lots of sentences. There might be a few words, but part of that, that rationale, part of that reason is that um, we are hardwired to be visual creatures going back to the fight flight response that's based in our the hypothalamus um, base of our brain. So words and text just kind of wash over you and you kind of zone out, but visuals actually connect to us in a much deeper way in our brains and it helps us to recall information. Additionally, if you can effectively visualize a concept, a transition, a phenomenon through stick figures, arrows, symbols using circles and squares and shading some and squiggly line arrow versus another and a frowny stick figure versus a smiley stick figure and the delta sign and Venn diagrams, you actually are, it's less of a commentary about your ability to draw and much more <laughs> of a commentary, commentary about your capacity for complex abstract thinking. Because people who go on and on and on talking about something but can't just distill it into a simple diagram don't really understand it. And the other, the third cool thing about being able to visualize data and ideas, um, I recently did. I, I was I was hired by by a um, consumer insights group at Tyson Foods to work with them on. Um, simplifying complex data through storytelling, visualization. Um, the, the other part of that is, is, is that you um, negotiate a lot better. You actually build strategy more effectively. You build teams much more effectively because a stick figure uh, doodles um, scrap, scratch, scratch on, on the back of a napkin or on a whiteboard are much far less intimidating than a shiny PowerPoint or a really polished 3D uh, digitally printed object, right? It, it, it invites clarifying questions. It invites people to engage in the process. And so that's, that's another big reason why it's so important to not be afraid to pick up the Sharpie, to not be afraid to pick up the whiteboard pen marker and to try to, um, you know, baby steps, but you get more courage as, as you do it, but to try to, to visually communicate what you're talking about. And, th and I love how you said it doesn't matter if you're artistic. It's, um, <laughs> thank, thank goodness, because I'm horrible. But I, one of the things that has been most, as you were talking, I thought, well, gosh, I guess I've really done this right. It just happened by accident. But when I moved my office and my home down to my basement and decided what colors to paint the walls and, you know, what I wanted the rug to look like and all these things, because to me, the, the visual uh, um, aesthetics is very important for where I feel comfortable. Yes. But I took one whole wall and I painted it with uh, dry erase paint. Mm-hmm. And so I have one complete wall. I have this big bucket of all these different colored markers. And so everything that I've got going as I'm writing and I'm thinking, I can put it up there and I can move it around and I can erase it. And it gives me, I never really thought of it. I just kind of enjoyed it because it's fun and it's you know nicer than a scrap of paper. But to me, as I see it on the wall with different colors and you know circles connecting things or a line crossed out because I changed my mind and I can go back and erase it and move it around, it becomes something that I can attach my thoughts to uh, 
you know, easier. I can get behind or I can look at it and ha- see it more objectively. I just thought it was kind of a cool thing to do, but apparently I'm also very creative. <laughs> yes, you, you are very creative. I mean, part, part of being human is to be hardwired to be creative. And unfortunately, in the way that we educate and in what's rewarded in a lot of, especially more corporate environments, is that creativity gets left in the realm of the traditional arts, where certainly people are supremely creative in the traditional visual arts, performing arts, etc. But we have to remember that to be an incredible scientist, to be an amazing entrepreneur, you have to be super, super creative. And creativity to me, again, is that system of being able to be improvisational, lead with intuition in order to get to insight and impact. And there's a whole lot more I can say about improvisation and intuition because I spent a lot of time um, researching that, uh, working through that and, and developing these sorts of frameworks. But we actually, um, it's part of our human condition to be creative, to be able to connect the dots between seemingly disparate areas in order to get to something new. Mm-hmm. And I, that's, you know, it's the, a little bit of the suspension of disbelief. It's, you know, I, I spent, a, oh gosh, so much of my childhood singing, dancing, you know, doing plays, that type of thing. So I've, I've had no fear ever of being on stage. Um, and I think sometimes those are some of the greatest gifts that I was given. I don't even know how or why I got them, but I know what they've meant for me to be able to think a little differently and sometimes think crazy things that other people wouldn't think, but, you know, but how would that, you know, how do you, I'm curious about, especially the things, you know, like with the doodles, or I know you have, you know, one um, uh, talk that you did, you know, about incorporating jazz. Um, You know, I want to, I'd like to kind of get a a feel for a session where some of these things, you can bring them out of people who might not otherwise see themselves as creative or, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, non-linear thinking? Well, the doodling is a place I always start because it's low-hanging fruit. Everyone can grab a piece of scrap paper and a a marker, a Sharpie. And I I take them through a priming exercise where I kind of show and prove that you can, in fact, doodle. And if you can doodle, uh, you can draw. So there's no (laughs) excuses anymore that, you know, I'm not a creative type. So that's where I like to start. Um, a big part of, of is, is the tone that I set in my workshops. Um, there's music. Um, I'm a very kinesthetic learner. I have a background as a dancer and studied modern dance for many years. And that, uh, something that dancers and desi- designers have in common is that you move in order to learn. You make in order to learn. You don't kind of sit there and just talk about something. You've got to, you have to try to move and work through it. You would never see a choreographer kind of, unless they're a very old, seasoned, revered choreographer, and they just kind of stand, sit on the stool with their, their walking stick and they with just kind stick. of, right, and they just kind <laughs> of yell at people. pronounce what the next movement is because dancers have a vocabulary, have a movement vocabulary. But, but you know, most choreographers in their prime are working with and moving the dancers' bodies and asking the dancers to execute certain movement in order to discover. So with that in mind, um, I, I'm a big encourager of people standing on their feet and, and literally thinking on their feet and incorporating movement. I do I do minimal amounts of improv ex- exercises. And you're right, not everyone is comfortable with that. And so um, it's it's always I always have to try to be 
very mindful of, of, you know, to what extent a group is receptive to that. And some groups, they just really are not receptive to even <laughs> a very, very minor basic type of improv activity. And it's just because we've gotten to where we figured that that's not acceptable, that's not professional. And so one of the ground rules that I always have in my workshops um, and in my work with my longer term work with clients is to suspend judgment. Um, if you decide after you know, this short time with me that you want to shelve something we've done, you're totally, you can do that. But for the few hours that we work together, just try working through this different process. Um, I'm also a big proponent of walking meetings. And something that I'm starting to do is incorporating cool hunting. So if my background in fashion, fashion is really big on scoping out trends um, observing weak signals and, and following the dots about where what that might be saying about a broader um, thing to come. And so organizing kind of like not exactly field trips, but but short, they can be really short exercises where people get out of the, the norm of their offices to just try to observe and look in new ways. And you'd be amazed at what that begins to reveal um, back at when you come back, return back to the matter at hand. And I think that, you know, the common theme there is, you know, being able to look at something differently through different eyes. Right. And it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I, um, I, when I do presentations, I don't, most of the time I don't use any slides at all anymore because I want to, I want to force people into a completely different comfort zone. And so many meetings and so many years I spent in, you know, corporate America also where, you know, you sit in there and everybody sits at the meeting, everybody's got a pen and paper, you know, they're all distracted. Their phones are, you know, right next to them. And, um, you know, when you really force people to get out of that comfort zone, you see very quickly, Who's also willing to grow and develop themselves in order to grow and develop a company? That's and right. The, you know, those that, and you know, not everybody has to get up and act goofy, but I'm willing to get up and make fun of myself and act like a, you know, clown on stage to shock people a little bit. But, you know, you don't have to go to the extremes I do, but <laughs> if you're not willing to, you know, doodle or jump up and down or, you know, at least suspend disbelief for the time that you're there, it does tell you something. I think that often if you really looked at that under a microscope, you would find it very reflective in the work they do and the impact they have on a company. I, I suspect the same. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, not that that's a, a negative. I mean, I know a lot of people who are very analytical thinkers that, you know, those are things that are really outside their comfort zone and they contribute in many, many different ways. Yes. Um, you know, and my husband always laughs. He's like, I could never do what you do, you know, more power to you. That's not what I want to do. Um, and he has s skills and strengths that I will never have, <laughs> frankly, right. that I don't want to take the time to develop. <laughs> right. Right. My husband too, very much uh, more of a, more of a planner and comes, it's a very, it's a wonderful yin to my yang. No, you're right. Exactly. It's, 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 you can't use a hammer for, for every single uh, <laughs> construction problem that, that comes about. But, um, you know, one of the things that I incorporate is play uh, and all of us, no matter if we are more analytical planner types or more, impromptu daydreamer types, which I would put myself in the latter category, we all <laughs> learned about our environments and the people around us and 
ourselves through play. And play is really a method of inquiry. It's a, it's a, it's a way to experiment. And so still, there's, there, there, there are ways that even folks who express themselves differently from me can bring play into something. It can be the way they can add, inject a bit of humor in, into something and, and through, through an observation. It could be in a, in a reference point that they bring up that I would have never thought of. So mm-hmm. play to me is, is a way that I, I, I try to, to, to get that out from, out of all of us, even if it manifests differently. Yeah. And I, you know, I think about uh, the very first podcast that I taped with a gentleman named uh, Michael DeHaan, who's the CEO of a uh, company called Sports Zone and Sports Zone Elite. And, you know, he was, you know, he talked about gamification that he added to his business to help his managers get excited about, you know, the stats that were important, you know, so KPIs are, you know, everybody kind of rolls their eyes, you know, in a sales environment when they have to discuss their, you know, measurement points, your key performance indicators, but they're vital to a business to know if you're on track or off. And he found a way to make it a fun game for people. And the, uh, the effect it had on the business was significant. And since then I've thought often about, you know, not everything has to make it a game or a contest, but, you know, he really took a, a challenge that his business was fake, facing and watched what the people were doing around him because he was watching people um, during uh, March Madness, you know, or it, and they, or maybe it wasn't March Madness, it was fantasy football. And they were mm-hmm. all compared, you know, they were checking their scores and they were all worried about where they were. And he goes, if they're that excited about fantasy football, how do I make them this excited about our business? Mm-hmm. And it worked Great. for him. And I'm like that, you're, you know, just so brilliant to take that and make it actually relatable to your team, but, yes. you know, really spark something in them that make them want to get invested again at a, at a much higher level. Right. Absolutely. That's a great example. So now I know that you have, I mean, you have had quite a career and then you have just made this decision in the last couple of years to, you know, go out on your own and and to speak and work with companies. That's a big leap. What made you have the courage to make that uh, jump from, you know, being a professor and the relative security of that? I know you were still speaking to other groups, but what made you decide to, to take this leap of faith? Well, I reached a crossroads and as I said, I, I was, I was, happily teaching in the academic realm. And I've been doing that for 15 years when I, when I met my, got to my personal crossroads, I had started uh, figure eight thinking three years ago after giving a TEDx Philadelphia talk. And I started getting invited into companies and, and large nonprofit organizations to give other talks and to give workshops. And finally, my husband said, you know, Nat, this is becoming a thing. You should formalize this. So I did. And that's when I created figure eight thinking really kind of as a placeholder. I was a very entrepreneurial academic, and my last contribution was to, to create the Strategic Design MBA program, which integrated, integrated design thinking to the way people were learning operations, leadership, branding, fi- finance, etc. But I was getting so many interesting and intriguing opportunities and invitations through figure eight thinking that I, I had to kind of hit a pause button and ask myself, what if I dove into this more consistently and, and really in a full-fledged way. I've never been a, a five-year plan sort of person. I, I literally have made every shift in my career by following my heart. And there were two other times in, in my life when I got to a point where I had that feeling. And when I had that feeling again, this was probably back in spring of 2016, 
I um, sat myself down. I thought, "Uh oh, (laughs) I'm going to have to do this work again and figure out like what really matters to me. And you know, that's bad when you have to tell yourself to sit down. (laughs) Yeah, I had to tell myself to sit down because I I was getting quite comfortable. I could kind of do the work in my sleep, um, Mm -hmm. which is never for me a, a comfortable place to be. Um, and on the other hand, I had this cool word tugging at me through figure eight thinking. And I spent a summer where I went on a listening tour and I gave myself a personal retreat. And my listening tour consisted of meeting with a range of people who know me and who I respect and admire. And I asked them to tell, tell me about myself. I'm at this crossroads. What else might I do? And so I took their opinions. I took my personal retreat. I have a, a wonderful friend who has a amazing home on Assateague Bay in Virginia and spent a week there and went out to the, to the dock every single day. The water is very important to me. It, it stimulates a lot in me and is also very calming to me. I'm a swimmer as well as a dancer. And so I, that was at the time I didn't know how helpful my retreat was because all I did every day was daydream, doodle, cry, journal, nap, <laughs> repeat, rinse, repeat. And um, at the end of the week, I thought, huh, I guess this was helpful. And I, you know, retrospectively, I realized how helpful it was to do all that reading and retrospective sense making and, and thinking and feeling. And the first step I made in my shift was I stepped down as director of my program. I never wanted to kind of get into a a place of founder syndrome. And then the next thing I did was I decided to step away from academia. I realized I can always go back into academia. And and in fact, I still have a toe in academia. So I've been invited to be a guest lecturer at Penn. And I'm also a fellow at the Paris D School. But I just wanted, I realized I'm interested in learning. I was less interested in the business of education anymore. And there there were so many other cool ways I could contribute to people's learning and organizational levels as well as individual levels and and start to discover different ways I, I could have impact. And once I made that commitment to shift, which, which I, I will say was 50% terrifying and 50% exhilarating. Yes. But what's I, but I, but my, I'll go back to my husband and he was, a, he was a huge encourager to me to, to make this leap. Then I haven't looked back. I mean, it really has been so satisfying. So I've been so happy in the ways that I'm learning and growing and all the cool things I get to do, the cool people I'm meeting, the travel that I'm doing and the ways I'm expanding the ba- my base of knowledge and, and, and reconverting and recreating the way I have to remix what I, different way, figure out different ways to convert information into knowledge and finally into transformation for, for people. It's, I love everything you said because it's how many of us really take that opportunity. And there's a couple of thoughts I have. One is um, I interviewed, he's now become a good friend, um, a gentleman, uh, Brian Wagner, and he um, has, uh, he, he speaks, he, he has a company called A Radical Vision, and it's you know he talks about the fact that he actually lost his eyesight. Mm-hmm. He's regained it in one eye, but he talks about people's blind spots and and you know what are they blind to about themselves? And he goes through this uh, you know how he uses the Joe Harry window to you know look at things that you know about yourself and other things about people that they know about you but you don't know, and and just your ability, um, your desire, your the bravery and sitting down with people and saying, tell me about myself. That's, that's not an easy, it's not an easy task to, you know, Mm -hmm. to listen to that 
and, and be able to accept it and embrace it. So, yeah. wow, congratulations to you for that. Thank you. That is, you know, something that I think we can, we can all gain from. Um, I also think about, um, you know, I have a, a very good friend um, and he listens to all these podcasts, so he'll know when I talk about him, but he has recently uh, retired. And first of all, he's driving his wife crazy, which is hilarious. And I know mm -hmm. her and love her dearly. And so, you know, she's right to be going crazy because he's, he's done so much with his life for so long that retirement is just really not, you know, that is that is not his thing because he, he has so much more he wants to do and give. And it's been interesting kind of just chatting with him, you know, as he's struggled, do I go get a job? Do I volunteer? Do I do something else? And, you know, seeing him go through a process of kind of reevaluating himself now that he's no longer that person he always was as a bus business owner and, you know, a, a leader and a manager. And, um, you know, it just, it takes courage for anyone to have that kind of self-reflection. Yes. It does. And and we don't pause enough in our society and really have to do these self-imposed pauses to figure out what's next. How am I doing? How am I feeling? And just to, instead of just plowing through, I, I certainly was guilty of that I was just plugging away, plugging away, plowing through, plowing through. And, and I, my inner voice kind of interrupted myself. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that I, I sat myself down and listened to it, even though I, I was uh, terrified of that voice. <laughs> I listened to it. <laughs> but that's also, you know, I mean, that that's, that's the recognition. So let me ask you this then. So it's the poignant question I ask everyone is, you know, knowing what you know now and where you are, what kind of advice would you give to the younger Natalie? You know, not, not necessarily a whole bunch younger in years, but, you know, younger in your career, younger in, in uh, age and wisdom, you know, what would you want her to know that you know now? Um, I... I think it would just be words of encouragement to keep following your heart. I mean, it, it may, maybe that sounds too simple, but it, it's actually for me been pretty profound and something that I've just gotten better at with practice and was sometimes hesitant to do, but I, I have to actually credit my parents for my, the original uh, givers of that gift to follow my heart because when I've shared in different conversations recently that when I was a sophomore in college, I was at a stage as many college students are where I had to declare my major. And I called home crying. Oh, because <laughs> I didn't know what to do, you know, first world problems, but exactly. yeah, I called home crying. And, uh, but part of it was just how I was wired. I, I, I didn't want to disappoint my parents. They sacrificed a lot for our education. I wanted to make sure I had a job when I graduated and I'm going on and on and on. And this, these are in the days when there were two phones in the house, one in the kitchen and one in my parents' bedroom. And they were both on each on a phone. They were one, exactly. <laughs> and they finally said, okay, Natalie, uh, what are you interested in? And so I started kind of apologetically talking about these anthropology classes I've been taking and these really cool Africana studies courses where I was learning economics from a different lens and philosophy. And um, practically at the same time, they said, well, that's what you should study. And I said, uh, come again, like what are, so you're saying that if I major in anthropology, perhaps a double major in anthropology and African studies, that will be okay with you. And they said, yeah. And my mom said, you should study what you love. And my father said, you will have to turn away opportunities. Oh. And the, 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 the real truth behind that is that when you do what you love it, first of all, it's actually a much more efficient way to live Amen. because how many people wake up, 
you know, with the mid, mid, middle age, midlife crisis and, you know, realize they have to kind of really pause and pivot and, and regroup versus people who have the courage to kind of just follow that inner voice, which, which starts out dimly maybe, and it gets louder and louder, the more you, you, you pay attention to it. And it's more efficient because when I was in my 20s, I, I, I taught myself a lot about personal finance by reading a ton of those types of personal finance books. And one of my the big takeaways for me was that it's not how much money you make, it's how much money you keep. And you anyone can teach themselves about investing and um and 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 surround yourself with the smart people who are good in financial planning. So it, it and if you do what you love, no one has to tell you to stay up later, wake up earlier, um, stay longer. You have this energy about you that literally um, draws people to you. And, and as my father had predicted, drew opportunities to me. I was I was turning. I have turned away opportunities because it, it's an energetic universal principle that I'm making up. I don't know the name of this. <laughs> I like it. But just that. <laughs> But but it, maybe it's a law of attraction sort of thing where um, you know you 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 get back what you, what you put out. Mm-hmm. So um, it was such a gift that they gave me over twenty five years ago because it just was this load that lifted off me. And to to during the whole time I was a, was was a full professor, I, um, I, I I was a practicing professor. I was an associate professor when I when I resigned. Um, I always communicate that advice to my students. Anyone who would listen, I would tell them, don't waste your time studying something that you think is practical. Study what you love. First of all, this this thing is way too expensive to do otherwise. Absolutely. And, and second of all, you're not really going to get it. You're not really going to enjoy it. You're not going to, to, to maximize and optimize what it could be. So I would, I would just tell my younger self, you're on the right track. Just keep following your heart. Cause I got to say, there were so many times where I really, especially in my twenties, a little bit in my thirties, but definitely in my twenties and my early thirties where I really struggled with being what I now own is that I'm a hybrid thinker, but I, I, there was, I was always comfortable straddling corporate and nonprofit and creative and strategic. And I always felt like I had to choose and finally, I just threw my hands up in the air metaphorically, and I just said, "That's the, I'm. This is who I am. I'm. I get both. I'm comfortable in both. I, I actually thrive in multidisciplinary spaces. So, I the, that would be the advice I would give to myself: is that you're on the right track. Just keep following your heart, even if this doesn't make sense to anyone else. <laughs> exactly. You know, it makes sense to you. I love it. Keep on keeping on. I love it. And you know, that's the thing is, you know, the, the real message is there partially about trusting yourself and following your heart, but also, you know, opening up to those that love you and care about you and that will tell you the truth, you know, that your parents said, follow your heart, but the people you've also spent the time listening to, you know, to tell you truths about yourself. And, you know, even though they, your parents told you a wonderful truth, it was still hard for you to hear at first yes. until you could find that way to create that space in your brain and your mind and your soul to say, okay, I can, I can, I can pull that and make that part of me. And that's, I think the journey for all of us is to find that place where we found the peace, where we integrate what we want to be, what we want to believe and how we say, okay, I, I that's who I see in the mirror. Yes. 
Yeah, I wasn't convinced right away. <laughs> no, I, I bet. And it's, it's so funny because all the different things you've said, I'm like, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. We have so many similarities. And I just sent off my uh, my uh, DNA sample to uh, Ancestry uh, DNA. Mm. And so um, because I was adopted, I'm thinking there's a possibility we might be related. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> you could be my twin sister and we were just separated. Yes. Could be. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I have so enjoyed talking to you. I could talk to you forever. Um, as we get closer to the end here, um, you know, what what do you want my listeners to leave with, you know, really in terms of your message? And, you know, if you had just a you know a few moments to teach them something more than we've talked about, to leave them with something that they can employ in their lives today, what would that be? I think it would be something that's very top of mind for me right now, which is, um, will be my second book. Uh, which is my wonder rigor framework because I've been, and it's all related to my interest and obsession with creativity and intuitive leadership um, and improvisation, which is based in complexity theory, based in something called chaotic systems thinking. But I've built out a, a way of approaching life and work called wonder rigor. And I really got to that by observing the ways that dancer choreographers work and problem solve. And it's really started out with, I was, I was trying, attempting to build a miniature ethnography of intuitive leadership. And I decided to observe um, DJs, first responders, chefs, and dancer choreographers. And I ended up being able to spend a bit more time with dancer choreographers. But the thing is that our educational system, our, our work environments reward rigor, reward, you know, discipline and time on task and checklists and and the and tests and, and those sorts of things. But what you learn from from people like dancers and, and choreographers, and choreographers are really, in my view, systems designers, is that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. And wonder is daydreaming, it's supposing, it's performing, it's dawdling. Um, and you realize even in the midst of, of real rigor, and dancers have so much of it because before the physical discipline, it starts with mental, intense mental discipline, practice, time on task, repetition, being told no over and over and over again, i.e. the audition process and showing up over and over and over again. In the midst of all that rigor is wonder. And so on my website, I have, I've, I've trademarked this. I'm, I'm developing a workshop series and we'll publish wonder rigor stories with the intention of, of, of helping organizations and individuals get inspiration from and learn how to create this beautiful dynamic between wonder and rigor in their lives. And wonder is also involves the pausing. That's the daydreaming piece. That's the dawdling piece. It's the exploration piece. Um, and we've got to bring more wonder into our work. So if you look on my website under the research tab, I, I developed archetypes for where in our days and our lives and our work habits, there's low wonder and low rigor. Um, I call those folks um, pirates, <laughs> those, those archetypes, <laughs> where there's uh, low, run, low rigor, but high wonder. That's where people get a little too loosey-goosey. That's, I call them provocateurs. 
And then where there's really intense amounts of rigor, but very little wonder, I call those people specialists. Mm-hmm. None of that can be sustained. Really, the, 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 the golden opportunity is to become what I call a boundary spanner, where there's high wonder and high rigor. And so that's what I would really love to leave people with. And it's something to stay tuned about that I am working on. And I'm, always, I'm also collecting examples of great people to include and organizations to include that, that do this well, not only in the arts. Um, so that, that's, that's what's been top of mind for me is my wonder rigor work. I love it. When is your book due? I first have to find a publisher, and I and actually right now I'm I'm <laughs> struggling between do I self publish, do I go through a traditional route? I'd love your advice on that. Um, yeah, I'll, we'll have to have yeah. a conversation about that because I was uh, spending a lot of uh, months and time and energy trying to go with a um, to find a major publisher for my second book, and I have turned it up on upside down, and I have I think I've found exactly what I'm looking for. So I'll have to share okay, it with you awesome. um, because. I think that uh, even though I kind of self-published one way with my first book, I'm going to uh, quote unquote self-publish the second book, but much, much differently. Mm. So I'm very excited about it. And it's funny you say that because I have set myself my uh, my target for when I need to begin editing because I'm almost done with the second mm. book and editing is the, and my husband's told me that my editing process must be much shorter than it was for the first mm. book. <laughs> so, because I can edit myself to death. So yeah. Yeah, I will definitely share some thoughts on that. I would love your advice. Thank you. Absolutely. Natalie, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Um, people can find out about you on your website, which is figure8thinking.com. And that is eight with the number eight. I will have all that on the research notes or the uh, show notes for you as well. And I uh, pulled up and looked at your Wonder Rigger uh, um, uh diagram there. So I'll be studying that as well. See where I fall in. (laughs) I hope I know. Um, Thank you so very much. I look forward to speaking to you again and uh, have a fabulous afternoon. Thank you very much, Michael. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Shock Your Potential. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and like our podcast. And for more information, find us at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com.